Hello, and welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. SWIB implements a prudent and innovative long-term investment strategy to manage the assets of the Wisconsin Retirement System Trust Funds. SWIB's portfolio of investments for the core fund is highly diversified, carefully monitored, and designed to strike an appropriate balance between risk and return. It's like the classic fairy tale Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Asset allocation is one of the most critical parts of SWIB's investment strategy. It accounts for variations in the risk tolerance and investment return levels for WRS participants. Today, we're going to talk about how adopting the optimal asset mix is vital to SWIB's success in effectively managing risk, stabilizing returns, and meeting the long-term goals of the WRS. The SWIB podcast is a monthly opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin Retirement System. Please make sure that you subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast with your fellow WRS members. Maybe leave us a review on iTunes as well so that it's easier for other members to find this show. Joining us today is Edwin Denson, SWIB's Asset and Risk Allocation Managing Director. Before joining SWIB in 2018, Edwin was Managing Director Strategic Tilting at the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Prior to that, Edwin spent 13 years in asset allocation, currency, and risk management as a portfolio manager at William Blair & Company, managing member at Singer Partners, and managing director and head of asset allocation at UBS Global Asset Management. Earlier in his career, Edwin was an economist at Lehman Brothers, Primark Decision Economics, and Putnam Investments, and he also briefly managed a commodity trading advisor and quantitative equity strategy. Edwin holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Cornell University and a PhD in economics from Northwestern University. Edwin, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the SWIB podcast. Well, thank you. Edwin, we kind of glossed over it there a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about your journey to SWIB, your role at the agency now, and how it fits into SWIB's mission to contribute to a strong financial future for the beneficiaries of the WRS. Yes. Well, as Chris highlighted in that intro, I have 25 years of experience overall in the investment industry and have spent close to 20 of those years focusing on the areas of asset allocation and risk allocation, which are at the heart of the role that I have here at SWIB. I initially made the move from for-profit asset management, as I call it, to the realm of public service back in 2013 when I went to work for the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board which manages the assets for the social security system in Canada. I made the move to SWIB because my role here as managing director, asset and risk allocation, even more closely aligns with my experience and expertise than my role up in Canada. My role here is to recommend and implement our asset allocation, as well as to recommend and implement how we invest in the various asset classes that we have chosen to be part of our asset allocation. Asset allocation is a vitally important aspect of how we invest the assets of the WRS as over long periods of time, most of the difference in returns between different pension plans is explained by the difference in asset allocation over that time frame. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the term asset allocation, but others may not. Let's start with that. What is asset allocation? Well, asset allocation is the selection of what asset classes to invest in and in what proportions. 
think the simplest generic example of asset allocation is something along the lines of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. At SWIB, we currently invest in the broadly defined asset classes of public equity, public fixed income, inflation-sensitive assets, private equity and debt, real estate, and multi-asset. Uh, within public equity, we invest in global developed large capitalization equities, domestic and international small cap equities, and emerging market equities. Within public fixed income, we invest in U.S. government debt and investment-grade corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities, high-yield bonds, and emerging market debt, both local and dollar-denominated. So you can see that we invest in a wide and diverse array of asset classes. And for each of these asset classes, we do have target percentages. I think it bears repeating that over long periods of time, most of the difference in returns between different pension plans is explained by the difference in asset allocation. And in other words, it is the asset allocation that determines a majority of the return that we experience over long periods of time. So asset allocation is one of the most critical parts of SWIB's investment strategy. The WRS has two trust funds, the variable fund and the core fund. The variable fund is an all-stock fund, but the core fund has investments, as you said, in many different types of assets. Can you explain how you determine the asset allocation that's right for the core fund? Yes. Let me start by stating that the challenge that we face today is complex, and there is a tension between two forces that are inescapable. And these forces are tied to a basic tenet regarding asset class returns over long periods of time. That tenet is that safer or less risky assets tend to provide less return over time. And conversely, more risky assets tend to provide more return over time. So in general, to grow the assets of the core trust fund for, say, your representative current active member over the long run, we should invest in assets that provide higher long run returns. However, those assets run the risk of providing meaningful negative returns over the short term, which is not a good outcome for current retirees, given the risk-sharing nature of benefits as reflected in the potential for downward annuity adjustments. So we need to balance the need for return over the long run against the risk of disappointing adverse returns in the short term. Now, to determine an asset allocation that is most likely to achieve this balance, we engage both an asset allocation consultant and an actuarial consultant. Every other year, these two consultants work together to model the assets and liabilities of the plan and simulate potential future outcomes and the sustainability of the WRS across a number of potential asset allocations that we could deploy. The problem is complex because the probabilities of various outcomes have to be balanced against each other. We endeavor to run an asset allocation that is neither too hot or risky, nor too cold or not risky enough. We refer to the range of asset allocations that is neither too hot nor too cold as the Goldilocks zone. If the asset allocation is run too hot, we run the risk of depleting any cumulative positive annuity adjustments in a very short period of time. And if the asset allocation is run too cold, we run the risk of continually eroding away cumulative positive annuity adjustments. And in either case, once those are depleted, a potential need for an increase in contribution rates or other remediation would be triggered, and we're trying to avoid that outcome. So an asset allocation recommendation is presented to the Board of Trustees for approval on an annual basis with the results of a full-blown asset liability actuarial study updated biannually. 
And when you talk about this notion of a Goldilocks zone when it comes to asset allocation strategy, and certainly that's something that I imagine changes from year to year, particularly with the volatility that we've seen in recent years. So how has SWIB's asset allocation strategy changed over time to stay within that Goldilocks zone? Well, first, I'd like to say that that Goldilocks zone is going to move itself very slowly because what we're talking about there are sort of longer term returns. So 10 year, 20 year, 30 year horizon. So the asset allocation range that keeps the plan sustainable does move, but it moves uh, slowly over time. However, if we do go back far enough in time, we can think about a markedly different environment And I'm thinking about 30 years ago, and I think this highlights the challenges that we have today in terms of it's become harder for us to, in essence, meet the actuarial rate. So the challenge has become harder as inflation and bond yields have declined significantly over the last 30 years. So 30 years ago, so let's say around 1990, U.S. government bonds and even cash were at or above the actuarial rate of return needed to keep the plan sustainable. Uh, What that meant was that sustainability could be achieved somewhat more assuredly by investing in bonds, which are inherently less risky than stocks and other asset classes. However, as inflation has come down over time, so have bond yields, making it necessary to rely more on inherently riskier assets to keep the plan sustainable. However, we have been thoughtful about how to rely on riskier sources of return to achieve our goals. There are two ways that we have done this. The first is through diversification, and the other is through the use of leverage. So these are two ways that we have changed or adapted our strategy through time. First, at the top of the conversation, you'll recall that I gave a fairly long, exhaustive list of the asset classes that we invest in. One of the benefits of investing in such a diversified manner is that these asset classes do not all move in unison. Some can do relatively well while others are struggling. But as long as they all move up over time, the result of diversification is a smoother ride on the way up. You can think of the old adage, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Secondly, we use leverage. But the way we use leverage is perhaps not intuitive. We use leverage in a manner that allows us to achieve a particular return with less risk than would be achievable without the use of leverage. I say counterintuitive or not intuitive because usually people associate leverage with more risk or undertaking something in riskier fashion. So again, it's perhaps counterintuitive that we use leverage in a way that's actually part of a risk-reducing strategy. We tilt our asset allocation mix more towards less risky bonds and away from riskier equities and then use leverage to recover the return we give up by having tilted the asset mix towards bonds. Simply put, the use of leverage allows us to maintain a particular return with less reliance on equity risk than would otherwise have been the case. And this results in achieving a particular return with lower risk. Leverage is a means in our framework for magnifying the benefits of diversification across the asset classes. So over time, we have become more diversified in the asset classes we invest in and have utilized leverage to increase the efficiency with which we attain any particular return target that is approved by the board. The term risk comes up a lot in investing, and certainly this conversation is no exception. And risk isn't necessarily a bad thing. My mom always told me the key is to take smart risks to get ahead, not the dumb risks, of which I took 
a few myself when I was a kid. But as long as these risks are within your capability for risk tolerance, and in that way, it reminds me almost of a race. And like a race car driver, Swib's strategy, as I understand it, is to be fast coming out of the curves, right? That's right. Well, first, let me just say before getting to that analogy that you're absolutely right, that risk and return are two sides of the same coin. You can't get return without taking risk, except in very specialized um, arbitrage circumstances, of which are few and far between. And there just aren't enough of those for us to provide adequate returns at the size of the plan that we are managing. So we have to take risk. And the idea is, exactly as you described, that we have to take it in smart and efficient ways in order to have the best chance of delivering the returns that are required without triggering some kind of need for either an increase in the contribution rate or a impingement on benefits. Again, it's the sustainability of the plan that we're trying to maintain. Now, in the analogy of the race car driver, it's true that if the race car driver is driving too fast, or in other words, taking too much risk, he can crash when the market environment creates a sharp turn or a sharp curve. Our diversified, efficient asset allocation helps us avoid crashing when we come upon those turns. However, there are also additional elements that help us come fast out of the curves. First, we have a very disciplined approach to rebalancing the fund. We refer to it as fearless rebalancing. Now, typically, when markets are having trouble, stocks and other risky assets perform bonds, leaving the fund underweight those assets. We have a very disciplined approach to then step in and buy those assets whose prices have fallen and selling those that have done relatively well to get the asset allocation back on target. In effect, this turns out to be a flavor of buying low and selling high. Additionally, the Board of Trustees has given staff discretion to deviate from approved asset allocation targets within a range. We take advantage of this flexibility to deviate from the approved targets temporarily when we believe there's good opportunity to do so based on fundamental analysis. For example, in late December of 2018, when the stock market had declined about 20% from its peak in relatively short order, we not only rebalanced to target at the end of December, but before the end of the month, we also intentionally went overweight equity relative to target. And then as the market rebounded, this allowed us to make more on the rebound than we'd lost on the decline. Similarly, we used this discretion and to a greater weight and effect to overweight equities and high-yield bonds after the market dropped precipitously earlier this year in response to the outbreak of COVID. And again, this allowed us to make more money on the rebound than we'd lost on the initial move down in the market. So the bottom line is that having a diversified and efficient asset allocation allows us to survive the downturns in the market well enough to be in a position to capitalize on the opportunities that arise when markets become dislocated. And in other words, we can come fast out of those inevitable curves. It seems to me like in a world that moves as quickly as the world of finance does, having the flexibility to deviate from a plan a little bit and take advantage of a momentary opportunity that's got to be a really big advantage for members of the WRS. Well, it really helps us to be able to react in real time relatively quickly and nimbly as capital markets develop. As you mentioned, things can happen very quickly. I mentioned earlier that we had taken advantage of the investment authority that we had from the board to deviate from target within a range back in December of 2018 when markets had ended up falling about 
20% from their peak in relatively short order. Now, the market really started to decline and the move really became extreme, actually in a very sort of slow period for most people. It was during the holidays between Christmas and New Year. But despite that, once the market had fallen to a point where we thought it was prudent to actually step in and increase our exposure to equities to actually purposefully go above target, we were able to get the decision made and get that done and completed and executed all within the span of a single day. So within the same day. And that kind of delegated authority and discretion given to staff really puts us in a good position to take advantage of opportunities like that. Because if we didn't have that kind of flexibility and discretion, we would have to have waited perhaps for the next board meeting. And by then the opportunity would have passed. And even if we simply needed a vote by the board to approve it, that itself could have taken several days, depending on the availability of different more board members. So again, the delegated authority that we have been given by the board of trustees really helps us again to react to these market developments, which have proven, at least in the last few years, sometimes to happen very, very quickly. You know, again, I would even say that very similar situation in March and April of this year, when the first outbreak of COVID caused panic in the market. In fact, markets fell harder and faster than they had in the wake of the financial crisis. And again, as we all know, because of the swift action by the fiscal authorities and by the Federal Reserve, markets recovered very, very quickly. So the ability for us to be able to step in and purchase assets that have fallen very quickly in price and from our view fallen too far relative to a reasonable expectation for the fundamentals going forward, really ends up benefiting the members of the WRS. So although the board does not approve the specific investment decisions, as you said earlier, they approve the overall allocation and the targets. How does that work exactly? So again, they approve the increase in target. They needed to be given the analysis and rationale and for why, and then the how that were those targets determined. It was all risk-based. We were determining the targets based on what kind of relative risk or tracking error it would induce at the core trust fund level if we were given that type of discretion. So it was within those bounds. And they're also always very interested in, we call that exposure management, these purposeful deviations from the asset allocation targets, they're always interested in what the positions are and how they're performing. And we do include an update in terms of the positive or negative return and what the actual positions are on a monthly basis in our investment committee material, which the board, of course, has access to. And then our quarterly board meetings, again, that exposure activity is always one of the topics of conversation. You've worked all over the country and even internationally in this space. How many of the places that you've previously worked would have been in a position to be able to capitalize on those short-term opportunities? Well, the previous pension that I'd worked at, so the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, had no such delegated authority for taking that kind of action on the kind of scale that we did relative to the size of the fund. In previous lives, at previous employers, of course, I was working in for-profit asset management, and there we did have the discretion to do that. So I'd almost describe it as giving beneficiaries of a public plan access to the same benefits in terms of return that they would be able to get from 
a private asset manager, but of course, as we know, our cost base is much lower. And so in some sense, the beneficiaries are getting the skill and the flexibility that are deployed at a much higher cost in the private sector in the context of the public plan that they are involved with. You talked about the diversification in the core fund and the different asset classes. What is the general breakdown of the allocation of the assets in the core fund? Well, right now, in terms of the top-level asset classes, we have approximately 49% of the core trust fund in public equity, about 24.5% in public fixed income, uh, 15.5% in inflation-sensitive assets, and specifically, that's all TIPS, so inflation-protected U.S. bonds. We have approximately 9% in private equity debt. 8% in real estate and 4% in the multi-asset category. So those are the policy targets. And for anybody who was listening and writing them down and then decided to try to add those numbers up, they add up actually to 110% of the market value of the core trust fund. And that extra 10% is the leverage that we utilize. Now, in terms of the discretion or leeway that the board has given to staff to be able to adjust the asset allocation in reaction to developments in the market for us to temporarily deviate from target. We have a range of plus or minus 6% around public equity. So that means with a target of 49, we could go as high as 55 or as low as 43. On public fixed income, that range is also plus or minus 6%. So we could go as high as 30.5% and as low as 185 around a target of the 24.5%. And then finally, on the inflation-sensitive assets on TIPS, that's a target of 15.5%, and we can go plus or minus 5 on that. So we could allocate up to 20.5% or move that down to 10.5%, again, at the discretion of the staff. And just to give you a little more on how we make those determinations, it's very fundamentally based in terms of the analysis that we do in support of making those types of decisions. And the asset allocation that SWIB ultimately settles on is unlike any other pension fund. The asset allocation is unique because differences in pension plans in terms of return goals, funding levels, and design of the plan result in different allocations, right? Oh, that's absolutely right. So there is no single asset allocation that's appropriate for all pension plans. And as you said, each plan has a somewhat unique set of circumstances that it's facing in terms of its funding levels, the design or mechanics of how the plan works, the actuarial rate of return that's needed to keep the plan sustainable over the long run. And so again, that's why we engage in a very comprehensive, sophisticated and complex modeling and simulation and stress testing exercise with the actuarial and asset allocation consultants to ensure that we have an asset allocation that is appropriate for our unique combination of those factors. Again, funded status, plan design. And then I'd say in particular with the design, what is unique about the WRS is the risk sharing elements of the plan with the retirees. Certainly. And when you boil it right down, that's what's going to have the biggest impact on WRS members is the results of how this asset allocation works out for them. So when you take a look at SWIB and the plan that it has in place, it's been pretty successful, right? 
So far, yes. We have outperformed a low-cost, simple 60% equity, 40% domestic bond alternative to our strategy. Over time, we have outperformed the actual rate of return needed for long-run plan sustainability. And we have ranked in the top quartile in performance relative to peers. You know, the comments earlier notwithstanding about the right asset allocation being different for different plans. However, as we always have to remind folks, past performance does not guarantee future success. The road ahead will continue to be difficult as forward-looking asset returns don't look so good right now, particularly in fixed income where the 10-year bond yield currently sits at under 80 basis points or 0.8%. However, we remain committed to the strategy and discipline that has resulted in a good outcome for our stakeholders thus far. Edwin, this has been a great discussion today. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Always glad to help. Thank you for listening to the SWIB podcast. We will be bringing you updates on a monthly basis, so make sure to take a moment and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, remember to follow SWIB on LinkedIn or subscribe to our email list for more information. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board with editing by Larry Kilgore and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.